it's it's helpful is to understand the mindsets of the person you're trying to convert. You're trying to get them to take an action, correct? The most precious commodity that we all have is one of two things, is attention and time. Oh, just imagine the amount of time that we've wasted just using a website because of silly usability. I look at usability and I look at conversion. That's what I'm interested in. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. Whether you want to be involved or not, being a marketing manager oftentimes requires that you become an overnight expert in a handful of digital tools. To some people, this is so frustrating, but to others, this is where they excel. But at the end of the day, these tools are created and they exist to help us quantify the actions that marketers are making day to day and how these impact the bottom line of any business. And because every business needs cash to exist, these tools for marketers are here to stay to help us understand and map the behaviors of our customers. My guest today is an expert at conversion rate optimization and user research. So maybe you can help us better understand what these tools can do and how we as marketers can use them better. He's the CEO of Invesp and the co-founder of FigPi. Join me on the show today. We've got Khalid Saleh. Thanks a lot for jumping on with me. Uh, Thank you for having me, Stuart. I'm glad to be here. On your, on your LinkedIn profile, you've got a really awesome bio at the beginning, you know, in those first 30 words, and it says, strong opinions, weekly held. Can you tell me a little bit about what that saying means to you and where it came from? So after doing marketing now for, I don't know, 15, 16 years at the risk of dating myself, I tend to have very strong opinions of how I think things should be, should be done. Because I've tried many different things, failed at many things, succeeded at few things here and there. So when somebody asks me, usually I try and avoid you know, the typical answer, well, it depends. I always have an opinion on the well here, but I've also, I've been humbled way too many times by just ordinary customers, the customers of our clients, to the point where I, I can change my opinion very quickly, you show me data, you can convince me. And I think really as a marketer, you got to do this. You, you got to adapt, you got to change, you got to be willing to to listen. My daughter thought it was really funny that I don't know Instagram. And I'm like, I know social media. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm active on social media. And, and this is very funny because for people who are used to Instagram, they probably will find my story really very strange. But I was trying to do something, something really silly like adding location and for somebody who does usability, somebody who advises companies, somebody who's online, I mean, I've been online like, you know, for like, what, 25 years now? It took me like half an hour. I'm like, I'm like okay, okay, I, I give up. I give up. I, I literally took her like, she's like, dad, you don't do this. Let me show you. And I'm like, okay, well, okay, yes, here, here's another lesson. So uh, th- thus comes the, the tagline, you know, strong opinions, weekly health. Oh, that's awesome. I, I really like it. Because, well, I think, it's, I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. So personally, I think it's important to have 
a point of view and to to express that and to to put it out in the world but then also to be willing to talk about new ideas and take on new opinions. And when you're presented new facts, there's nothing wrong with having a change of opinion, right? As long as you've, you, you were able to justify it. Exactly. But then professionally, and this is why I think it's super interesting too, given your uh, area of expertise is we have this idea of how we think the world works. And as people trying to sell or change minds or influence, you have to be willing to be wrong because if they buy something for a reason that you would never buy something, you have to say, okay, I'm not my own customer in this case. So I'll give you, I'll give you a story over here. So for a long time, I speak at marketing conferences all across the globe. And for a long time, I, I used to give this example when I'm talking about e-commerce websites. I'm like, and, and the example was simply look at category pages for e-commerce websites. Lots of e-commerce websites have the add to cart button on the category pages, you know, listing product listings. And, and I would always say, how many, how often you know, does any of you click on that add to cart from the category page? It is stupid to have it there because no one does that. I want to see the product. I want to check that I'm looking at the right product. I want to look at the price. I want to look at the images. Consistent example I've given again and again. Then we have this one client who signs up with us, very, very large client, and they're in the MENA region, uh, Middle East, North Africa. And I'm looking at their analytics, and the team is showing me the analytics, and they're like, oh, we need to take your opinion about this. They're like, lots of people are going from the category page to the cart page. My first response was like, ah, they have a problem with analytics. It's just kind of like, you know, very quick. Our analytics guy looks at me, and he gives me this look. He's like, come on, you know, I've been doing this longer than you've been doing. And I'm like, I'm like, hmm, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something more. He said, call it. People are actually, about 80% of them are adding, or 82%, 83% are clicking on the add to cart from the category page. You don't understand how, like, I just sat there and I'm like, wow. You know, for the, so many times I've given the example. So the next conference I showed up to, I said, for those of you who have heard me speak about this before, you know, here, the users proved me wrong. And this is really what you have to be open to. Lots of times, you know, we, we do a lot, ultimately, when, whenever we work with a client, we do A-B testing. And sometimes every once in a while, you'll have somebody who reaches out to us and says, hey, can you guarantee the, the results? And I always tell them, like, you know, it's called A-B testing. It means that I don't know for sure that what I'm doing is correct. It means that your visitors are going to be judging the quality of, of my work. Thus, no, it's not guaranteed results. And it's the same thing, correct? Uh, sometimes we, we present a design. We're so sure that this design is going to do so well. Visitors tend to have different opinions sometimes. <laughs> and it's like, really, guys? This was so awesome, but you didn't like it. I don't understand. So. Maybe you can answer this question for me. When it comes to A-B testing, and when we talk about A-B testing from here on out, we're really just talking about putting two user groups to show visually and aesthetically and different copy and different button options and different flows to see which one optimizes the best return. Yeah, it generates the more return. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe you can answer this for me. When you're A-B testing, do you always want to select the one that is performing the best and then you say A keeps doing better than B? You start going with A and then you turn and then you change B to another design and then you just keep iterating one of them or is there a benefit to having maybe ABC? Can you, can you explain a little bit how your kind of mentality around that testing, the testing world? Sure. 
So it starts, of course, by identifying the page and why is there a problem. So that that in itself, by the way, is the hardest part of the A-B testing. Okay, let's start wow. there then. That's way more important then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I always tell people, I'm like, if it comes to opinions, you have an opinion, I have an opinion, the user have an opinion. And it's like, okay, well, in the arena of opinions, you know, who, who's correct? When Whenever somebody from our team comes up with an idea, they must back that idea by some research. Now, this research could be as you know, I've conducted some user interviews and they're really struggling with this thing, or it could be uh, based on some usability and conversion principles. So we do an expert review and we have about 150 different items that we look at at a page. So we say, hey, these are general principles. It's not guaranteed that they will lead you to, to a change or a positive change. But we say, okay, we reviewed and we see that there's an issue there. Uh, it could be that we've watched one of the things that we do with with all of our customers is we'll install software to watch session replay. So as visitors are navigating around the page. So we see a behavior, not from a single visitor, correct? Because single visitor can take you astray, but it's consistent behavior. It's like almost everybody's missing this button or everybody's just moving their mouth. Everybody's clicking here. And uh, you can look at the analytics. There's lots of reasons why you come up with a test. Uh, an interesting thing could be, listen, I've read, uh, and then we've done this recently, we've done some, we've read some research, industry research, where they say that having a pay now option before people sign up, you know, for a certain software, increased conversion by 7%. We're like, huh, we have a client in the same field. Uh, we wonder if this research would apply to them. So it always starts with that idea. So now I, I come up with an idea. You know, and I found a problem. The next thing is, well, how do you fix this problem? Now, there's so many different ways you can fix a problem. Sometimes I always say, like, you know, you can do an element change, correct? The headline is not good. The image is not good. The button is not good. Those are really simple. You know, so you, you got elements are the actual elements of the page. Of the page, okay. correct. Second level is what I call page level changes. Move things around. Listen, like, you know, think about copy. Uh, you need to address objections. You need to like move things around. You need to think about how people are actually thinking about this particular product. Uh, I was giving an example earlier today on LinkedIn where somebody was talking about those site pop-ups, like, would you like to receive updates from us? They are annoying. We can all agree on that. But what's even more annoying is they show up the minute I just landed it on the site. I don't know you yet. But like, yeah. give, me, give me like 20 seconds so at least I would know who it is before I say decline or I don't want to hear from you. But that's, you know, again, you, you got to think about the visitor and how they view a page. So that's a page level change, which, which is interesting. It's harder, mm-hmm. usually generates higher uplift. And, and lots of times as something is harder, it probably there's a good chance that it will have a better impact. A third thing could be maybe outside of the element level, page level, is how visitors flow through the website. Best example I can give is single page checkout versus multi-page checkout. Uh, I've seen I've seen both win, by the way. I've seen a single page beat a multi-page, and I've seen multi-page beat a single page. So you come up with a, with a solution, and that's when you go into the A-B testing. So you say, okay, well, no, we have the original design. That's the That's the A. Uh, let's look at, let's create B, sometimes C, D mm. designs. Mm-hmm. Usually in our testing, we don't exceed more than five challenge, uh, four challenges. So in total five running in a test. Okay. So you've got, so you've got the challengers and then what do you call, what do you call the best one? Uh, the original, the control, uh, the control oh, okay. is the original, correct? This is, si- this is science. Oh, I love it. <laughs> there you go. And, and ultimately 
So before we run, we say, okay, so how many people are going to typically in the past month have viewed this page? Past 30 days, 20,000, 100,000. How many conversions this page generated? Now, lots of times people say, well, this site generates 500 conversions. No, it doesn't matter how many page, how many conversions the site generates. What we need is how many conversions came from this particular page. So from the cart page, for example, to the order confirmation. Lots of times, I'll give an example, an e-commerce website might have 1,000 conversions. Perfect. Okay. So you get 100,000 visitors, you get 1,000 conversions. Well, if I'm testing the homepage, guess what? I need to know for the visitors who came to the homepage, how much they've generated from the conversions. You'll discover that of your 100,000 visitors, only maybe 5,000 viewed the homepage. And of those 5,000, only 50 of them placed an order. It's important to know those metrics. Uh, We use some statistical tools that are not very complicated. By the way, you can plug in those numbers and will tell us you have to run the test for two weeks, three weeks. Perfect. I know I have my variations. I know how long I'm going to run the test. Uh, and we, we launched the test and we sit there and we watch the data very, very carefully. We rarely call the test early. If it does, says three weeks, it's going to run for three weeks. Where does that num- Where does three weeks come from? Uh, it's just a random example. So there are statistical calculators that you use that will tell you how long you need to run the test for. Here is the reason. You run testing long enough, by the way, and this is consistent. The first day you run the test, one of your variations, one of your challengers is going to do so well. And you're looking at it, it's like, oh my God, it increased sales by 50%. We have found a winner. No, you did not. Things just, the minute you launch any type of testing, I don't know why, you know, some group of people just fall in love with one of your challengers and you think you've had a challenger, you leave it for three, four days and it's like, oh, it's going back to normal. Oh, we don't have a winner anymore. So you don't want your own personal opinion to really play into when do you call, when do you say, okay, I've, I actually have a winner. So you, you've predetermined how long you're going to run a test for, if it's one week, two weeks. We don't run tests more than four weeks as a, as a kind of a hard rule that we try. Yeah. You know, We look at it at that point when it hits the, the numbers and we say, okay, so do we actually have a winner or, or not? And that's kind of like summarizing the process in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. When did when in your career did you realize that experimentation was a really important part of marketing? Oh, this goes back to pre pre marketing days. Um, so I come from from a software development background, um, and I used to be actually my last project was the competitor of Zoom, or Zoom is their competitor because they're still much larger. It's go to meeting, go to webinar. But prior even to that, uh, I was a software architect for Motorola, um, huge project. $35 million in three months. And being a software architect, uh, one of three, uh, there's two other amazing software architects on the project, but that meant that with $35 million on software and hardware, we, we got to do whatever we wanted. You know, it's like, oh, and, and as a, f- a software architect, you pick the pieces that you like. It's like, oh, I'm going to work on this piece. And you little guys work on those other pieces. Perfect. Everything's good. You know, and I, I still recall this December 2005, we, we, we launched the site and we're excited about it. The site got so much traffic, so many visitors come to it. We had 16 servers to host the site. And within two hours, the site went down. That's how many visitors the site got. Perfect. Okay. Bring the servers back up. It's like, oh, we're excited. A month later, the site got about 10 orders. For a $35 million investment, the site got 10 orders. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, ooh, you know, so I always end the story by saying, and, and this actually happened. Some people lost their jobs. Others like me thought, I'm like, oh, well, there's something there. There's something that you can do to help companies figure out how to, how to increase conversions. And the, uh, 
And the first couple of years when we started doing conversion optimization, we actually did not even do uh, A-B testing at that point. It was not popular at all until Google released a piece of software called now and it's called, uh, Google Website Optimizer, which now has been basically they like, you know, removed it and they replaced it. That's when we got turned into A-B testing. And it's like, okay, well, we can give suggestions of how to improve a site and how to increase revenue, but A-B testing, we actually tell our clients, instead of taking our opinion, we'll split your visitors. You have 100,000 visitors, 50,000 see the old design, 50,000 see the new design, and let's see what the visitors think. So it's so powerful. Uh, and again, so humbling, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure, especially when there's so much, like that project being so big, there's so much on the line. It almost seems strange now because it has been become embedded. Even as someone who who doesn't have a software background, I know that usability is is. I know what it is. Like it's yeah. it's a topic that I I've heard about and been taught about, even if it's just passively, because there probably were so many projects like that before. So much money, so much time lost because they didn't think about the users; they just thought about their own use cases. I'll, I'll give you an example so you'd laugh about this. Healthcare.gov. It's the most expensive, by the way, website on the face of the earth. One point three billion, not million. That's a billion with a B. You know, and regardless, whatever I mentioned this example, people in the US like you know are either supportive or against. And I'm like, no, I don't care. I'm I look at usability and I look at conversion. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah, the amount of usability mistakes that that site had and the amount of issues. I'm like, I'm like, I wonder why marketers love to reinvent the wheel. It's like, come on, guys, there's some silly mistakes in it that you're like, really? So I, I we have an office in Europe, and I lived in Europe for three, four years, so I never really had to use the site. Last year, I come back to the U.S. and I'm like, oh, let's get like, you know, the health insurance through healthcare.gov. So it's, uh, for those of you who have never gone through the process, it's about 16 steps. Oh, my God, to, to apply. Okay, that's fine. Of course, I never have all the paperwork ready. I'm filling it out. I'm like, okay, step number nine. Oh, they need my daughter's social security. Call my wife. Like, do you know her social security? No. I think it's upstairs in the room. Run upstairs to the room. Come back. Oh, the session expired. Log in again. Step number one. I'm like, no, no, I cannot do this again. Right. You know, and I'm like, I mean, so, okay, here, I probably, I calculated I wasted like four hours trying to fill a silly, mm -hmm. silly one application. I'm like, so I'm one user out of like, you know, I don't know how many millions of users. Just imagine the amount of time that we've wasted just using a website because of silly usability. And I want to make a point to what, what you said there is when we hear the word conversion, we think about purchase, but it doesn't matter what our website is trying to do or our ad, we're just trying to get someone to take action. And so in the, in the .gov situation, it's like the government wants people to submit their information so that they can process it and get you healthy or get you paid or whatever the thing is. Same with newsletters, like the, the conversion is someone giving you their email. Same with even phone sales. The conversion is, did that person book a second meeting? Like the, exactly. The, it's just trying to get people to take action and it doesn't need to be complicated, but you need to kind of, I don't know, maybe this, maybe you can answer this for me. Is it helpful to think backwards and understand what your outcome is and then design something forwards? I think where it's, it's helpful is to understand the mindsets of the person you're trying to convert. You're trying to get them to take an action, correct? Right. The most precious commodity that we all have is one of two things is attention and time. Oh, you know, I mean, I, I am so, I, I try to be 
as, as much as I can protective of, of my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and attention is just difficult to keep up. You know, there's just so many different things that are happening at the same time. Well, in order for you to get that person, whether it's, by the way, person you're talking to on the street, whether it's somebody who's coming landing on your website, if you're doing sales, most people don't know at some point I was involved in, in political campaigning and I people said like oh you're so good at it and I told them I'm like oh it's the same conversion language that I use in my marketing I just don't talk about visitors I talk about voters right. and they're like really I'm like it is <laughs> just look like it just flows because I'm like I'm, because I've been talking about it for right. so many years it's, it's ultimately that's what it comes down to if you can understand why a person would want to do the action that you want them to do. So typically, uh, whenever we buy something, whenever we do something, there's three different drivers that c- come uh, behind our de- our decisions. There's functional aspects to, like, you know, to, to, to doing an action, and then there's an emotional aspect, and then there's a social aspect. So I'll give you the best example. Everybody knows the story uh, or the famous uh, saying by Professor Lovitz from Harvard Business School. No one buys a quarter-inch drill. Everybody buys a quarter-inch hole. Kind of like, you know, everybody mm-hmm. repeats that. So we moved to this new house in Chicago. And people are constantly telling me, like, saying the saying. And I'm like, really? Like, I went to Home Depot. I bought the drill, but I really didn't buy the drill. Nor did I buy the hole in the wall. That I. What happened is we moved to the house. We had the paintings all over the place. And my wife was constantly telling me, like, call it. What are you going to? What are you going to hang them? What are you going to hang them? What are you going to hang them? So when I made that trip, yes, I did want the functional aspect, hanging the pictures. That's the functional aspect. Whenever you buy something, I'm drinking water because I'm, I'm thirsty. But there's the emotional side. Mm-hmm. The emotional side was getting my wife off of my back at the risk of her listening to this podcast. You know? <laughs> and then there's a social aspect to me making a decision. My friends were coming to visit that weekend. Then I'm like, oh, I want them to see my, my, hang, my paintings on the wall. If you can decipher those three different components, and we as marketers, we can always figure out the functional aspect. That's very clear, correct? Because mm-hmm. it's very, it's like kind of like straightforward. But if you can figure out the the emotional and the social sides of, of things, and you use that, then you can go back and it's like, okay, so here's the emotional, here is the, the social aspects, here are the objections. People always tell you, like whenever you go want to buy uh, a car. People always say, like, it puts a humongous list of criteria, correct? I want this, and I want that, and I want safety, I want... But when they go actually to buy, to make that decision, 90% of the items that they've said there is their criteria just fly out, fly out of the window. Right. You know, it comes down to, like, maybe price, maybe social status, by the way. Uh, yeah. I want to buy a Camry, or I want to buy a Mercedes. Like, see, the like, salesperson the brings up an offer, and there's all exactly. of a sudden scarcity and time, and, and it there triggers all the, the primitive emotions rather than just, I need to get to point A to point B. Exactly. No one buys a car for that. There's a thousand other options. So I would say, like, a $20 bill in itself is not interesting. What you can do with a $20 bill is a lot more interesting, mm. correct? Mm-hmm. So that, that's the thing. $20 is like, okay, well, it's a piece of paper, you know, but you know, trying to, to figure out, like, you know, it's like, okay, what do I do with this? It's a lot more powerful. Let's talk about the user research side of things. What kind of questions do you ask to uncover those drivers? So this is, this is very powerful. Lots of times marketers love to ask, why did you buy our product? And what they get is what I say, top of mind answers. People tell you what they think you want to hear. Why do you buy this? Uh, I, I was doing an interview recently, and then this, this lady was just basically telling me that she bought a food mixer. 
Why do you buy it? Well, I need to make pizza. Okay, that's the functional aspect. I don't ask why. I usually, why start the conversation by saying, so when did you buy the mixer? What was going on in your life at that point in time? I'm not concerned about the experience after acquiring the product. I'm always concerned about the experience prior to. Mm -hmm. Let me understand. So what was going on? Well, I had made pizza for my husband that weekend and it turned out to be really bad. Oh, well, how often do you cook for your husband? Well, it really started with COVID and we're trying to live healthy. Look at that. I'm going back. So I'm like, let's, let's go back to the beginning of this. How was the first meal? Uh, what were you guys doing? What, and, and lots of times I ask people questions and they think it's very, that the, the questions are really strange. I'll tell them, do you recall what day it was? She's like, oh, it was, it's like, I think it was Thursday. I'm like, okay, was it day or night? It was night. No, it was around 4 p.m. I arrived early. How was the weather outside? And she's thinking this is very strange. But what I'm doing with her as I'm asking those questions is I'm actually putting her back in that moment. You know, initially she didn't remember what day and she's like, I was like, no, no, I remember it was Thursday. It was gloomy. My husband had just come back and we didn't want to go out to eat. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, I'm going to cook something. But I was worried because his mom was, had cooked the same meal. And I'm like, oh my God, we started from, I just need to buy like a food mixer to something where she's thinking about her husband. She's thinking about making a meal. She's a perfectionist. She's thinking about uh, her mother-in-law. Now, this is, this is very powerful. And it all started with when and going backwards. Lots of times when marketers do those interviews, they like to ask, I'm like, so what was your experience with the mixer? Okay. Right. So, uh, okay. But no, no, let's, let's decipher the social and, 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 and emotional sides. I'll give another example. I was doing an interview. Somebody bought a, a bicycle, just a regular bicycle, but an expensive one, $7,000 bike bicycle on the crazy seven thousand dollars so i'm asking i'm like you know like so when when did you buy what was going on he's like well he's like i'm like how did you make the decision he said well it was a it was a sunday morning he's like i remember it really clearly i'm like okay he's like well i'm a group with other you know cyclers and we stop at a traffic light i'm like okay he said i look at the group leader and he's riding this bike I'm like, oh, okay so he saw the i'm like how did that make you feel he said i felt envious as a marketer, that's a gold mine. No one would tell me that, correct? Mm-hmm. Taking him back to that moment, he finishes the, the, the trip that he did. He goes and buys the bike, you know, spends $7,000. Gets two receipts, by the way. This is also customer experience. He gets two receipts from the, the shop. One receipt to show the wife that he bought the bike for 500 bucks and the actual receipt for $7,000. Oh, that's bad. That's, that's customer experience. <laughs> but that's kind of like customer research that you want to do, correct? Digging up those social and emotional elements to buying a product is yeah. so powerful. Do you have a preferred way of performing those interviews? Because there's there's trillions of tools at this point. And I think maybe speaking for myself, I put, I, I put those interviews away because I'm like, I'm sure there's a digital way I could do this. I'm sure there's, I don't need to talk to someone in real life. <laughs> no, no running away from, from it, my friend. It's so basically whether, by the way, is for us, like, you know, with our own clients, we do those interviews because we want to understand what was going on in their lives when they decided to hire a conversion optimization company or for our own clients with their customers. So typically, these interviews are lengthy. Uh, they run anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour. Imagine you're talking to somebody 45 minutes to an hour, and sometimes it takes even longer. So we'll tell them, hey, listen, we need people who bought your, your product or service, whatever it might be. 
within the last three months. We don't want somebody who bought like a year ago because they would have forgotten the emotional side side of things. And I'm digging for emotions. We tell them, send them a survey, you know, so we can get them to like, you know, and we want to make sure that somebody had actually spent his own money. So if he got it as a gift, he didn't really invest in buying the product. And then basically we'll send out the surveys and we'll say, hey, you know, if you're willing to talk to us for 45 minutes to an hour, we'll give you a gift certificate. Sometimes a discount, sometimes something like that. Typically we'll conduct anywhere between eight to 20 interviews. Now you're doing an hour of prep before the interview. You're doing an hour interview and you're doing an hour post-mortem post-interview. Post, uh, post mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you're doing 20 interviews, that's about 60 to 70 hours. Now here's something I discovered. You need to take really good notes. We record the interviews. Rarely do people go back and listen to them. It's just horrendous. After you've done three hours, like mm-hmm. I have to go back. So you really have to know how to take the right notes, how to ask the right questions. Sometimes we transcribe them. It makes it easier because then like I collect the transcription from 20 hours of interviews. I look for similar phrases. But um, people always ask me, like, how do you write amazing web copy? I'll tell them, well, actually, I'd never write web copy. I take the words of your customers, what they've told me, and I just use them on your website. And you think to yourself, like, oh, this is absolutely amazing. Like, they were not my words. These are just the absolute words of your customers. Because if I write copy, I sound like a marketer writing copy, correct? We, we have a way of writing with words that almost mean nothing. Mm-hmm. Your customers have just an amazing way of expressing why they bought something, and it's just so powerful. You touched on the impact spending your own money has what would would you do the same technique in a b2b setting where someone isn't spending their own money they're actually spending the company's money how would you approach that interview um same same process so we we have one of the largest seo companies in the us hired us to help them with conversion optimization and the guys have been doing seo longer than i've actually since i started college and that's a long time ago so when i suggested to them to do those interviews i know that their CEO and founder looked at me in a funny way. And he's like, really, come on. You know, is this going to be helpful? We're B2B. We're... And, and I told him, I'm like, you know, let's listen to the first three interviews and then we'll decide whether this is useful or, or not. And I insisted that he attends the interviews and I'm like, I'll give you just quick training before for an hour. I want you to attend and just listen. By the time we finish the third interview, you know, hang up. And I'm like, so what do you think? He said, you know what? He's like, I'll be very honest. I thought it was a whole bunch of BS when you suggested to do the interviews. He said, the value that I got, regardless of whatever you guys do more of listening to those three interviews, for me is worth tens of millions of dollars. Coming from somebody who runs marketing, who runs a very large SEO company with, I mean, their company is about like, you know, probably 20 times larger than our company to hear that from him. I'm like, oh, this is the power. And he's like, oh, he's like, I think we need to continue with like, you know, five, six more interviews. I'm like, sure, we'll do that. Um, then you said, now it's worth $10 million. <laughs> oh, man, I, I'd love to, correct? <laughs> it's like, hey, so since you said, can we yeah. renegotiate the, the fees? Uh, I think B2B, as long as, by the way, and this is important, with B2B, sometimes you do two interviews with the person because there's somebody who actually suggested the solution, and then there's somebody who signed or somebody who made the final decision, so we try and hit both. Um, definitely not, the C- sometimes the CFO is the one who actually signed the check or the contract. They don't know anything <laughs> to them. It's just another contract. You want people who were involved in the process and you want to dig. It's like, okay, so what was happening? What was the frustration? What was the trigger moment when you said, that's it, I'm done. I got to do this. I got to, because correct is always kind of the, the, the trigger that says, I got to go ahead and, and 
buy this item, whether it's B2B or B2C, and then kind of pushing it through. What are a couple of typical mistakes that companies and marketers who are kind of in charge of the website, where, where are the huge mistakes when you go on a website and you're just like, really? <laughs> that if, you, if changed would kind of have the biggest impact, at least, at least right away. I think it depends on the company, but I think for both, by the way, B2B and B2C, copy can be so powerful. And you want to use copy that's really the language that your customers use. Just uh, there's this famous saying, and I, I forget, I should probably attribute it to the right person, but it's for a famous copywriter who says, I think it's Ogilvy actually, who said, if you want to use those words, you know, and you're advertising, get on a bus, drive, go to Ohio, spend a week there, talk to people. And if you still use the same words that you're using right now, then go ahead and, and use them. Lots of, and by the way, it's funny coming, coming from somebody who does conversion optimization, who believes in web copy. I always look at our site copy and I'm like, really? I'm like, what is this? Your <laughs> own website? Uh, yeah. It's like, it sounded perfect two years ago. Nowadays, when I look at it, but that's kind of the, the, the process of trying to kind of always improve. So I think copy is very powerful. Moving away from very generic you know, terms, marketing speak, into the actual language that your customers use, the words that they use, that is so powerful. So that's, that's one aspect, by the way. Um, the, the other aspect that I think is really important, and just kind of looking at the site, I think kind of figuring out the usability issues. Sometimes th- there's different things that, that could happen on the website. So there's bugs. I'm trying to, to pay a company. I'm trying to, I have the credit card in my hand and I'm trying to pay them. Every time I click on pay, you know, the page refreshes and I'm like, I'm like really guys? The, I, I, the credit card is in hand. I want to give you money. Come on. That's a bug. So you need to make sure that your site doesn't have any bugs. And, and you know, you can hire people to do that. You, sh- you, sh- you can ask your wife, husband, significant other, mom, by the way, to, to look at the site. Yeah. You know, so that that's, you need to make sure that you're done with those. There are no bugs on the website. The second level is usability. And, and usability is about like, well, I clicked on the button, but I really expected for things to happen and nothing happened, correct? Like, you know, I expected your site to tell me that you've received my, my request. I expected, the, like, you know, the image to appear on this side. Uh, every, if you think about e-commerce, we always expect familiarity, the power of familiarity. We always expect the cart page icon to be in the top right corner. Kind of like, you know, the, that's the familiarity that people like. You break some of those familiarity rules and people get frustrated. Mm-hmm. So make sure that you follow good usability. I always say you need to have enough familiarity so people are not frustrated, but you need to sprinkle a little bit of surprises here and there, good surprises that people get excited uh, excited about. Those are kind of like, you know, just quick things about the website that I'm like, always pay, everybody should pay attention to. Do you have any usability resources or best practices that, that are available that people could look up? So I, I always suggest the NNG group, uh, Nielsen Norman uh, group out of uh, the UK. I mean, the, the guy uh, came up with, the, the, he's the usability expert, by the way. My first introduction to usability was his book back in college. I still remember uh, a friend gave me that book, you know, and, and he has the 10 rules of usability. So for example, system status. So somebody submitting something and let's say it takes a while, you should probably show some, you know, that those circles that, that always appear that something is happening as opposed to, did you receive my order? Should I? Mm-hmm. So it has 10 rules that are really very simple that I think every website should make sure that they follow and adhere to those rules. I, I think that's a good resource to start with. Uh, sometimes people overcomplicate usability. I'm like, just make it user-friendly where it's very simple. And whether it's, by the way, copy or usability, I have 
for me, the mother-in-law rule where I show it to my mother-in-law. Yeah. So yesterday we're creating new copy for the site and my wife is looking at it and I'm like, I'm like, call your mom and just read this thing to her and see if she understands it. And she's like, I'm not going to call her. She's not going to understand it. I'm like, I want it to be that simple. Correct. I want her to understand what we're doing. And, she, and my wife looks at me and my wife is known as the CRO queen. So she, she's done more AB testing than anybody else. And she's like, she's like, really? She's like, I struggle explaining what we do sometimes to my friend. And I'm like, that's a problem. We need to be able to express it in a way that is very clear, very concise, and your average Joe will understand it. Uh, that will make people trust you even even more. So, so for copy, you want the you want there to be that familiarity and the the conversational and and allow for that trust to happen when you're selling a really technical product and that has specifications that people need to hit. and And is there room for the technical copy? deeper in the website? Is that where you'd put it? That, that, that's what I would do. I, I would mix both, correct? But I ultimately, remember, going back to the $20 bill, not interesting itself. It's what I do with that $20 bill. I'll give an example from our, our website, and that's how we're, we're updating the website. So right now, the site says, world-class conversion rate optimization. Horrible title, by the way. World-class, really, world-class, okay? Uh, and conversion rate optimization, that's, that's exactly what we do. That's the functional aspect. Well, here's something a bit more interesting. So we're, we're playing with different you know, titles. We're like, okay, so what's the emotional side? Why do people hire a conversion optimization company? Why do they hire a marketing agency? So we're ch- we've changed the title and we're maybe testing a whole bunch of titles. But the one that seems to be doing well is we've been expecting you. It's time to grow your business. You know, it's like, oh, well, they actually hire us to grow their business. And we've been expecting you as a little bit different. That's a lot different than the empty mm-hmm. world yeah, class. That- that definitely has a different immediate impression. Exactly, exactly. Where people feel it's like, oh, and it's funny because I was so excited about that that title that I'm like, oh, I'm going to go and change it on the website. So I did last weekend, and right away we we tend to get lots of visitors to our website, but the number of leads increased, and I'm like, look at what I have done, you know? I'm like, you I have done, done this, this. <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like, you know, so. Playing, there is there is place. Um, you go to our website. We have uh, coming from a computer science background. I've written so many articles on A/B testing statistics, and some of them are just I know are horrendous because I look at them and I'm like, okay, this is seven thousand words. There's so many formulas in it. But for a certain segment of our visitors who are statisticians, who are data scientists, it's very helpful. That's not the majority of our our visitors. That's a small small segment, and we need to make sure that for that segment that's coming for technical aspects, they can find it. But for the majority of people who are coming, they're they're looking for other additional things. So you got to understand your audience and how you actually how you speak to them. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a pretty good spot to uh, to wrap it up. You've really given me so much to think about in terms of well, just me personally, like understanding why someone even would want to engage with. Uh, whether it be this show or the the work I do or anything like that, you need to to go deeper than just what functional uh, benefit is there, and then going down all the benefit lines and the the functional, emotional, social. I just love those three because we do complicate it. We overcomplicate everything pretty much when we start trying to understand why someone even wanted it. It's like it only comes down to those three, really. Yeah, I'll I'll give you a story, Stuart, just for you to think about. Yeah. So we reached out to this one company, very successful online, and we're trying to sell them conversion optimization. Uh, my thinking, if you ask me about my competitors, other conversion optimization companies, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. 
So I'll talk to their VP of marketing. The guy is absolutely amazing. He has almost 30 years of marketing experience from direct response to data sciences. To, I mean, he knows it all. And I'm trying to explain to him what we do and how much we can help him. And there's a personal friendship that develops over like you know, over time. Scott, I'll, I'll be very honest. He's like, I know you guys will do well. He's like, that's not an issue for me. You know, I've, I've seen, I've talked to other people. My issue is as a VP of marketing, I have about 12 other alternatives that I'm looking at that I'm considering. You guys are only one of those 11. And I'm like, what are the alternatives? So I'm thinking other CRO firms. He said, well, we can increase our spend on PPC. We're thinking about TV ads. Uh, we're thinking about hiring somebody to do internationalization on our side. And we're thinking also about mailing catalogs in the mail. Wow. Guess what? He did not even mention that I'm competing with other CRO firms. I am competing actually with catalogs getting mailed, sent in the mail. And that's yeah. actually what's one at the end. $85 million in sending catalogs in the mail, you know, versus the CRO firm that can help. But that tells you kind of what you got to rethink about the marketing and how things are positioned and how in the mind of the customer, it was a completely different game. Right. So in his mind, it seemed more, it seemed easier to put more water into the bucket than to fix the holes that's in the bucket. And because he knows it, he knows it so well. They've been doing it for so many years, you know, and he's like, and, and, and you know, it's funny because he you knows he's like, oh, he's like, I can get ROI from all of those. He's like, because you, you would, we would not be talking if I, if I didn't know that I'm going to get the ROI. It's just a matter of which ROI do I want to focus on, right? Which is very powerful, you know, kind of like a different mindset that I'm like, oh, so okay, got to rethink yeah. The, yeah. through the approach. And you solved your own problem because you you had a consultancy, and then you realized that other softwares aren't doing the kind of conversion optimization that you were hoping for, and so that's why you created your own called FigPy, right? Yes. So FigPy is interesting. We've actually created it now since it's been almost nine years, but we've been strictly using it internally. You go and you try and sell eBay to buy a conversion optimization project from you. They're like, oh, sure. Yeah, we'll go ahead and sign up. So how much do we need to spend on software? Oh, you guys got to spend $35,000 per month on A-B testing software and heat maps. And that just kills the conversation just there. So we said, okay, let's build our own tool. Lots of the tools that are available, regardless, by the way, whether it's conversion optimization or not, what happens is, after a while, they just start adding features just for the sake of adding more features. What do we do next? We finish the core product. Well, let's just add more features. But most of these features are not easy to use. Uh, Optimize VWO, two pieces of software that I'm very familiar with from the beginning. And I, I, I like them because I've used them for so long. But because of the few, last few years, we have our own internal product. I haven't, I haven't used those two platforms. I log in and I'm trying to create an A-B tests. Uh, some, I don't think anybody had created any more A-B tests than I, than I ever did. And it took me like an hour. And I'm like, I'm like, what the heck is going on? I cannot figure out how to create an A-B test because they've overcomplicated the product. So that's kind of the idea behind FigPy. It's like, okay, so what, what do I really need to do? How can I help people to understand why visitors are coming to the website, what they're doing, and why you know, that they're doing a certain action? That's kind of the, the, the mindset. So it's, it's very focused, a smaller feature set, but a very useful feature set. Uh, it's just like how the iPhone, I don't know if you saw the announcement of the iPhone a few days ago. They announced features that uh, Android had for many years. Like, really? And now I can like, you know, watch video at the same time. But guess what? Because Apple did not focus on the same feature that everybody had. They focus on very their very own feature sets, what makes them unique. And now after they finish that, they're like, look at the other additional features. That's kind of the philosophy behind, behind FigPi and how we built FigPi. I love that. That's awesome. And it's spelled F-I-G-P-I-I. 
figpie.com if you want to go take a look. And I saw that there's a free, uh, free trial uh, or a free bracket for, for small independent people. And I know I'm definitely going to go give it a try because I have no idea how my website's doing. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, give it, give it a try. Uh, and, and, you know, it's one of those things that I, I always, we've just released it in January. We've had seven, 700 signups uh, in the last two months, which was incredible. My, my goal was to have 200 signups by the end of 2020. I didn't expect to have that many uh, people, people sign up. Uh, but one of the things I do quite a bit is actually jump on phone calls and talk to people. To understand what was going on, what what make them made the decision. Like, so, so I'll be like, hey, so what was going on in your life at that point when you decided, I want to go ahead and, and, and sign up and, and hear those stories. They're so powerful. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Cal. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, really just distilling what usability and conversion rate means to marketers because it, it, it's simple. It's not easy, but it's so necessary. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.